Okay, welcome uh, to our regular listeners. Uh, we have a special episode today. Um, you'll probably recognize me. I hope it's been a little while. Um, Hunter Marston and with me today to discuss um, Southeast Asia, we have a few uh, really stellar experts. Um, I got to assemble a dream panel today. Uh, so I'm really privileged to have with me. Uh, and welcome back, Alina, great. So first off is uh, Alina Noor, who is a director of the Political Security Affairs and Deputy Director of the Washington DC office at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, Alina has written phenomenal work on technology, politics, and economics of Southeast Asia uh, with special focus, um, if I'm not mistaken, on Malaysian politics, um, but, but really a, a true expert of the region. Next, we have Evan Laxmana, who is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and a non-resident scholar with Carnegie China, as well as the Lowy Institute uh, in Sydney. Um, Evan was previously a senior researcher with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta, uh, not to be confused with CSISDC, and a visiting fellow with ICS in Singapore. And finally, uh, Sebastian Strangio, uh, old friend of the pod, and who's hosted uh, in my stead before. Um, Sebastian is the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat and has written uh, a number of uh, truly exceptional works on Southeast Asia, including most recently the book In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century with Yale University Press. Uh, so welcome, everyone, and thanks very much for joining me today for this uh, special episode. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, just to get started, um, in, in no particular order, I thought I would sort of kick things off by asking each of you uh, to offer some thoughts about why Southeast Asia matters. Um, so typically, as most of you may be aware, this podcast discusses international relations, U.S. foreign policy, and just sort of the uh, state of um, international policy making from the undiplomatic perspective, of course. Um, but we don't typically go too deep into Southeast Asia as a subregion uh, or, or wider region. And I think it might help just to frame the discussion uh, if we could talk a bit about what is Southeast Asia um, first off, but why does it matter and why, why should listeners care about Southeast Asia in particular when we have war raging in Europe and uh, US-China competition across the globe? I mean, I can start. So you asked the question, what is Southeast Asia? And I think that warrants a whole discussion on a completely different podcast episode, right? Because we can go into what it all means, like Southeast of what, you know, and really which perspective you're viewing Southeast Asia from. The name itself tells you a lot about how the region is viewed, was viewed, probably continues to be viewed. But we won't go into that. I just wanted to lay the context. And I think... The question of why Southeast Asia matters is well documented, right? We we know that it's important for trade, it's important for technology increasingly. Um, but I think the more important and silent questions are um, who is it important for and what is it important for? And that shapes a lot of the narratives that are floating around today. Um, so. I can go into that, but I don't want to dominate the question and the questions that I posed myself. I'll, I'll leave it to Evan and Sebastian for their thoughts as well. Yeah, yeah uh, sure. Um, and I just want to say that uh, I think Alina is, is, is absolutely right to pose those questions. In fact, I think uh, increasingly one can even start to argue uh, 
just to be a bit of a devil's advocate here, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't matter in the way that uh, some of the narratives are looking at U.S.-China competition, for example, uh, that the measurement now, whether or not Southeast Asia matters, is to the extent to which uh, individual Southeast Asian countries will help or not help uh, in the process of great power competition. So if, if viewed strictly from that lens, I think you are going to see privately uh, uh, more, more policy analysts maybe start to accept maybe Southeast Asia doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter that uh, there needs to be a buy-in for uh, the Quad, for example. Maybe it doesn't matter for how the U.S. thinks about a military contingency with Taiwan. So in that sense, I think Southeast Asian states themselves have not been helping their case within the context of asserting their own agency and charting their own course. I think we are still very much under uh, the illusion, if not the dream, that when it comes to U.S.-China competition, for example, that the idea U.S. and China can still work together in Southeast Asia is a goal to be achieved, when in fact, for many outside the region, that is probably a non-starter. So maybe it is time to actually really ask that question. Uh, if it does matter, does it matter for our own sake? Or if you look at it only from the perspective of U.S.-China competition, then I can see why for some it doesn't really matter what Southeast Asia wants or what Southeast Asia thinks uh, uh, the trajectory of the region should be because they themselves have not been trying to uh, fundamentally shape the region. Right. I'm, there's not a lot really for me to add to, to these um, illuminating comments. I, I suppose, you know, just um, branching further from what Ivan was saying, I mean, during the, the Cold War, the original Cold War, you know, what Southeast Asia wanted was, you know, not in, in many cases, not really taken into consideration. I mean, you know, these, these nations were viewed by both sides as, you know, uh, as, as pawns, as, as chess, uh, you know, squares on a chessboard. And, you know, and very often that involved, you know, I, I got my start as a journalist working in Cambodia. And, you know, Cambodia perhaps is the paradigmatic example of the, the proxy, uh, Cold War proxy. But, you know, the, 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 the great power competition that engulfed the region during that time was something that, you know, really drew, drew Cambodia in. And it, it was, it, it, as a result, the country was totally devastated. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting to sort of pose questions about, you know, what what it means to say that a country is important. Um, you know, I, I, we can definitely talk further about, you know, from the Chinese perspective, why Southeast Asia is important, from the American perspective, why it's important and potentially from others. But it's worth underlining, you know, above all that the region is important in and of itself. It's it's you know, more than 600 million people, you know, a large economy. Um, you know, a lot of people's livelihoods and, uh, you know, uh, are, you know, kind of, you know, on the line here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a large, significant chunk of the world's population that we're talking about here. Yeah, that's um, an important point to make. And, and many Americans, uh, you know, I speak as an American here, probably don't realize the significance of uh, Southeast Asia collectively to their own um, economy. And, um, you know, I wanted to sort of connect a point that Evan made here um, regarding what's sort of a, a tension through the outside powers framing and looking at Southeast Asia uh, in a sort of utilitarian sense. You know, I, I look at the Biden administration's rhetoric of Southeast Asia is critical, Southeast Asia matters, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations collectively, represents an important partner for the U.S. on its own grounds and not as part of U.S.-China competition. 
But as Evan noted, um, major powers, including Australia, Japan, and India, and the United States are going around ASEAN uh, to form minilateral um, institutions uh, like the Quad as sort of a, a way to uh, find alternatives to security partners and providers, um, as well as providers of other public goods that don't are, are not slowed down by the sort of Southeast Asia block as a whole. Um, so is, is there an inherent contradiction there, or is this just sort of the natural way of things in geopolitics? Well, I think from from my end, uh, when it comes to these uh, minilateral arrangements, I think, first of all, uh, Southeast Asian states themselves have had a, a long experience of minilateral arrangements. The Malacca Strait Patrol is a minilateral arrangement. The Sulu Sea uh, Patrol Cooperation is also uh, a minilateral arrangement. We've also had economic minilateralism. But I think what is different about the kinds of U.S. anchored minilateralism that we've seen, like the Quad or AUKUS and others, is probably the notion that these uh, new arrangements are speaking about a broader set of regional order questions, whether it's norms exercise or public goods provision. And I think that's something that ASEAN has never really had to contend with anybody with before. So I think that's why things are slightly uncertain from the perspective of Southeast Asian states. But on the other hand, those who advocate for Quad and AUKUS and others would say, well, this is two separate um, uh, baskets and we're just pushing for a particular type of cooperation among existing regional powers, nothing to do with ASEAN. And so maybe it's not really important whether or not um, Southeast Asian states or ASEAN support Quad or AUKUS because it will still do their own thing. And I think that's all perfectly fine, except that the Southeast Asian states themselves are now essentially, uh, by default, maybe uh, surrendering some of that regional order maintenance outside of the region, uh, uh, rather than making sure that ASEAN can be revitalized and actually go back to its original role of the shaper of regional uh, security architecture. And this is where I think the domestic trends in the individual Southeast Asian countries have been probably stronger than they are uh, uh, at the regional side of things. So when the priorities for regional order making is not in the minds of domestic policymakers, are we surprised that other bigger powers uh, now start to dominate the way regional security building has been done? So I think it is a natural progression of things. I'm not saying it's ideal, uh, but I think the sooner we accept that reality and try to do something about it is probably better for Southeast Asians. I think it also reflects a certain, um, I don't know, disdain is the right word, but a, a frustration with the, the, the fair, fairly sluggish, uh, time sluggish processes of ASEAN and, you know, form, forging, you know, the, the attenuated process of forging a regional consensus around issues like this. Um, or, you know, the, the question of whether Southeast Asian states have different emphases from, say, the United States and its quad partners about what exactly a rules-based order, um, you know, constitutes. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a certain sense in which, um, yeah, I mean, that, you know, because ASEAN is not um, throwing its lot in as a block with, um, you know, the, 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 the Quad's way of looking at things, which is very security focused, despite sort of recent initiatives um, that are branching into public goods provision and economic uh, areas, um, that, you know, uh, that, that basically these these sort of so-called like-minded nations need to sort of move forward on their own and that, 
you know, we, they can't really rely on ASEAN. But as Evan says, I think it's probably a, a vacuum that ASEAN has, has you know, um, sort of created through its own, you know, I suppose, lack of vision or, or um, you know, being able to play this role itself. The other variables, of course, are time and personalities, right? If you look at the, some of the regional initiatives that Evan mentioned, those arose as a response to particular urgencies at the time, and they've endured, like the Malacca State Street Patrol. Um, but also, they happened at a time when maybe certain leadership personalities were stronger and more invested in those issues at that particular point in time. And we may see this happen, of course, in in the future, perhaps with other issues. So I think it fluctuates as well with what's going on in the region at the time, whether there is political will and commitment to move ahead with some of these minilaterals, whether to be invested in some of the extra regional initiatives, minilaterals that are ongoing as well. So a lot of moving parts to, to the target, whatever that target might be. While we're talking about ASEAN, um... In 2019, ASEAN collectively adopted the ASEAN Outlook on the Indo-Pacific as um, generally understood as a response to these outside uh, or major powers' um, own Indo-Pacific visions, free and open Indo-Pacific rhetoric from the likes of uh, Japan and the Trump administration in Washington, D.C. What, what should we make of ASEAN's outlook on the Indo-Pacific? Is that an actionable item or is it more just... Uh, ASEAN's sort of rhetorical claim to relevance. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Alina? I think it was a response uh, to the narrative that was beginning to reshape conversations around the region. So the whole nomenclature of Asia-Pacific turning into the Indo-Pacific, ASEAN had to respond, and rightly so. But I wish that ASEAN was a little more dynamic and robust in its response. What was laid out in the you know few pages of ASEAN's outlook on the Indo-Pacific was fine. I think it sets a backdrop for future more concrete initiatives. Um, actually, some of them are ongoing. But really, it's essentially that. It's just a response. And if you look at the document itself, the outlook on the Indo-Pacific, the language mentions both Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific, which leads or lends to some ambiguity about how ASEAN member states really feel about the changing of the terminology from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific. And there are still references to Asia-Pacific, uh, depending on the circumstances and situations. So it seems as if um, ASEAN was compelled to have a response, but wasn't quite sure how to respond. Yeah, even accepting the, the, the terminology of the Indo-Pacific carries with it a certain um, assumption about, you know, world order. And I mean, that, that term is freighted with um, a lot of assumptions about, you know, the, the, the sort of challenges posed by, you know, these revisionist powers, China and Russia and, and, and various others. And, and the, the, it, it sort of implies almost a framing um, the framing that the U.S. has adopted is sort of, you know, about this idea of the free and open order, you know, uh, you know, set against this sort of closed and more authoritarian vision of world order that these other revisionist powers are seeking to um, create. And so I think a lot of Southeast Asian uh, governments are ambivalent about um, really both visions. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and as a result, the, the outlook sort of tries to split the difference to sort of warn about the growing mistrust between these two visions uh, or the, the, the advocates of these two positions and, um, and, you know, it warns against sort of a zero sum form of competition. Um, mm. It's really sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, a further iteration, I think, of, of ASEAN's desire to sort of have its cake and eat it when it comes to questions of, of, of great power competition, sort of to maintain its economic relationships with China while also benefiting from the stabilizing, um, or at least in some cases stabilizing, I think Van would probably uh, uh, beg to differ on that question, you know, effect of U.S. Mm. security deployment to the region. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, what's, what's I think, under uh, developed, I think, is the right word perhaps to describe the essence of the ASEAN outlook, but the way that Indonesia had developed it before it became an ASEAN product was, I think, partially responsible for the way the document came out, which is not everybody, as as, as Alina and, and Sebastian mentioned, not, not everyone in uh, the whole of ASEAN agreed that we need one uh, to start with. Um, and number two, I think it is true that the best case scenario at the time was that ASEAN outlook became a reference point, something that external powers can cite to when they're talking about Indo-Pacific. So at the time, uh, the essence of the programs, the policies, the areas of cooperation, these are things that are not new. These are things that we've already agreed on. These are things that we've already worked on. Um, and so this is not the invention of a new strategy or a new resource or a new uh, implementing program. These are essentially a restatement with the proviso that there's is now a wider set of lens and that this becomes a reference point so that when ASEAN deals with the US, when ASEAN deals with Japan, with Australia, everyone cites uh, the ASEAN outlook rather than citing the free and open Indo-Pacific, rather than citing China's community of mankind or whatever. So I think initially from that standpoint that it becomes a reference point, I think that was relatively successful. But when it comes to actually shaping regional outcomes, clearly that is still far. Uh, this year, uh, according uh, uh, as, as we've seen in the past uh, few months, is the idea to mainstream the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, which is part of uh, a few of the key products of the last summit in Cambodia. But this was obviously the way Indonesia wanted to do it. So essentially, mainstreaming the ASEAN outlook is a bureaucratic sleight of hand. Rather than developing new strategy and resources, what we want to do is relabel existing programs and activities as falling under the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. Um, so therefore, in, let's say, an ASEAN Maritime Forum, an ASEAN Regional Forum, you can have activities that falls under the rubric of ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. And if there is a new thing, it would probably in the form of some sort of Indo-Pacific uh, infrastructure summit or food summit. But there is certainly the idea that implementing the outlook is yet another event rather than genuinely shaping the program. So from that standpoint, this is a par for the course. ASEAN is about uh, sustaining and uh, expanding the processes rather than uh, shaping outcomes. So I think there's a lot uh, left to be desired, uh, but certainly now I think the way Indonesia has been uh, moving on this uh, is focusing on how to get the ASEAN outlook as a reference point uh, with the 
a dialogue partners when in fact i think the biggest challenge for us in outlook is not the ex external partners it's within us and themselves um the 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 gap between maritime and mainland Southeast Asia over the maritime centric nature of the ASEAN outlook is still there. Um, so I think it is a, a huge challenge, but the challenge isn't from external, I think it's from within ASEAN. Mm. Well, I am uh, reluctant to make this an ASEAN heavy uh, podcast, uh, thinking that that such a um, uh, sort of multilateralism and, and specific to the institution of ASEAN type content might be a, a bit lost on general listeners. But zooming out a bit uh, to the issue of great power competition, ASEAN has um, talked about an open and inclusive regional order, um, but really we see sort of competing visions, as Sebastian uh, has noted, of what is, what is a free and open Indo-Pacific and if open to whom and, and for whose rules. Um, and while China has not really adopted the Indo-Pacific language itself, it's sort of acknowledged the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. But how has the region uh, more generally reacted to um, great power competition? And, and just uh, before I sort of close that question, there's an understanding of a general bifurcation that exists where the US has been sort of the security provider and China is the number one trader, uh, major source of investment in the region now, and ASEAN states can sort of have their cake and eat it too. Is that bifurcation sort of overplayed or does that generally hold? Yeah, I think a couple of things to unpack, right? The first is, as you mentioned, um, ASEAN has always been, or the Southeast Asia as a region has always been inclusive or at least tried to be. And there's a question of whether the phrasing of a free and open Indo-Pacific actually includes that inclusivity bit, because uh, there seems to be a dissonance sometimes in the rhetoric of a free and open Indo-Pacific with the practice of inclusion or sometimes exclusion as the case may be based on certain conditions. Um, and so I think there is a bit of complex unpacking for ASEAN to do when it hears this rhetoric of uh, you know, open Indo-Pacific and how itself, it itself, ASEAN, Southeast Asia as a region, should react and respond to it uh, with its own initiatives. I think the other thing to unpack, of course, is um, how the phrase free and open Indo-Pacific translates into not just English in the context of different countries in Southeast Asia, but in the local languages of each of these countries in Southeast Asia. And I think this is a point that's often overlooked because we assume we're all talking about the same thing. We speak English to each other at international forums. We're speaking English right now. But English is, of course, not um, every country in Southeast Asia's first language. And for me, it'd be interesting to understand how the term free and open Indo-Pacific or indeed any other term that seeks to shape a narrative about regional order translates into a local language of a Southeast Asian country and what it actually means for those people, for the policymakers of uh, those particular countries, because they can mean very different things and we can be talking across each other, uh, sometimes with very subtle nuances, sometimes with great difference. I think another factor that's, you know, that, that complicates, I suppose, Southeast Asia's reception of this concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific is the, the fact that the free and open idea is very often um, paired with a framing of great power competition that privileges this sort of clash of ideologies, sort of the liberal democracy on the one hand and some sort of brand of authoritarianism on the other. Now, the fact that many Southeast Asian nations are not 
liberal democracies. Um, you know, in fact, you could maybe, you know, you could probably make the argument that, that none of them are consolidated liberal democracies. Definitely complicates matters. And you have, you know, in a lot of Southeast Asian, you know, amongst a lot of Southeast Asian elites, a real resistance to, or, or sort of a, a, a distaste for being sort of, um, as they would might see it, being looked down upon by Western powers, given the colonial history of the region. And so there's, you know, that, that idea of free and open, you know, also carries with it for some leaders in Southeast Asia, a, you know, a, a potential threat that, you know, does free and open refer to the domestic political arrangement of the particular country in question? Um, and so that's sort of, you know, that is also something that's, that's been a factor, perhaps not so much for the maritime countries, but I know that it's certainly been an issue for some of the mainland countries and, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, in addition to the questions about inclusivity in terms of the international order, it certainly, um, you know, it also figures into the domestic context of some of these countries. Um, and and I, I might just add that, you know, this is a, a way that Southeast Asia is important in a broader sense, to come back to the first part of our discussion, which is, you know, Southeast Asia, um, you know, with the potential exception of Singapore, although Singapore is also post-colonial, um, you know, it, it, Southeast Asian nations are members of the global South. And so, you know, how Southeast Asia sort of reacts to great power competition and seeks to position itself, you know, also will reflect, you know, it, it has relevance to sort of how African countries or some African countries might seek to position themselves, you know, in the face of this Chinese push into Africa and the U.S. response or, or some countries in Latin America. Um, so, yeah, I, I just thought I'd append that on the end there. I think that's an important point to make. Yeah, I think that um, the, the two key issues, I think, when it comes to the bifurcation as well as the inclusion, uh, the inclusive regional order part is number one. Uh, Southeast Asian states, I think a lot of the leaders uh, still cling on the idea of compartmentalization, right? If I do more stuff with China economically, I should be able to do more stuff with the U.S. militarily, right? So they're trying to compartmentalize engagement with the great powers in a way that they can exploit that competition for their own particular benefit. I think that's still the illusion that they cling on, that you can separate this domain for that great power, that domain for this great power. I think that's the first illusion. Uh, the second illusion is that uh, I think the notion of inclusive regional order is great and we all uh, support that. But the concern is at what point does inclusive regional order become strategic overcrowding in which the agenda of the bigger powers actually set the tone and the points of discussion rather than those of the smaller powers. And this is where I think some in, in Southeast Asia still believe that ASEAN should still be useful in that sense, that if the regional powers want to come and talk to us, they should follow the talking points and agenda of ASEAN um, as it's said by the Southeast Asian countries. But this is, I think, starting to, um, to be hit with reality. And I think this is where the concern, for example, like Malaysia and Indonesia over AUKUS, for example, right? So these are, I think, the kinds of issues when we talk about uh, the bifurcation, it is something that's actually beneficial uh, for some of the elites in the way they exploit their engagement and alignment with, uh, uh, with different parts of the US and China, uh, but also figuring out at what point do we stop inclusive regional order from becoming strategic overcrowding. Mm. The um, problem with that sort of bifurcation is it sort of uh, assumes that countries are aligning one way in one uh, domain and another in the other domain. But do you see examples of um, 
some states, you know, frequently these days, people will point to Cambodia or even Laos as sort of, you know, indebted to China and therefore politically aligning uh, with China. Um, do you see other countries sort of leaning out one way or the other? You know, even the U.S. allies, the Philippines and Thailand are really uh, sort of independent actors, free agents um, these days. So it's sort of hard to get a read. But I, I, I would argue that I don't think there's such a neat bifurcation in that you don't see um, states just sort of um, sitting on the fence and, uh, you know, aligning in a neat way, one one direction um, in one domain and in another, uh, in the other domain. Uh, no, it's a neat oversimplification. Um, and it's it's useful in, in sort of a broad sense to kind of to illustrate how, you know, the, the general tendency in the region is that the U.S. is more security focused and that China is more economically focused. But you're right. I mean, each nation has its own unique admixture of these two elements. And a lot of nations in the region would would very much welcome greater economic interaction with the United States and a more forward thinking American economic vision for engagement with Southeast Asia. I think yeah. what's what's challenging about about that question is the implicit assumption that there is spillover. If I do stuff with you militarily, you will be aligned with us strategically beyond military, right? That's certainly the narrative coming out of Secretary Austin every time he talks to Prabowo, uh, that they want interoperability as part of a bigger strategic realignment. And I think that's where the problem is, that there's an assumption uh, that if you do stuff with us in one domain, it will lead to the other domains. But in reality, I don't think the leaders see it that way. I think the, the leaders simply say, yeah, I don't mind doing stuff economically with China in some issues. Sure, it will constrain us in, in other domains, but that's the risk. And it's the same thing with the military. So it's, it's sort of having uh, both sides in which the U.S. and China feels that having one domain uh, cooperation can give them multi-domain alignment. And for the leaders themselves in the region, yeah, as long as we get the benefit, uh, a cheaper product, uh, when we try to play off one country over another, I don't care about the broader strategic realignment picture, even if that means from time to time, in the case of Indonesia, I would argue, we are sleepwalking into strategic alignment when it comes to external issues. So I think this is where with the concern is that bit by bit, smaller policy specific uh, alignment in terms of coordination and cooperation collectively leads to a broader strategic realignment, even if we didn't consciously think about it as a cross-domain strategic realignment. Mm. This idea of being locked in through interoperability is quite a significant one because just look at the history of Malaysia's defense procurement. It makes no sense at all strategically with a mixture of acquisitions from different countries with competing interests and, and sometimes very adversarial goals. But in Malaysia's risk or threat perception is not the same as these other powers that have sold Malaysia um, these defense equipment. And so there is a bit of uh, schizophrenia, if you will, in what goes on in the heads of policymakers who um, uh, approve these defense decisions um, with the realities of the strategic environment. And, and it's not just for the time and day of when those decisions will be made, but it's also thinking into the future. So in Malaysia's case, you know, there's no interest in making China an adversary. And if we lock ourselves into certain defense purchases, then we're locking ourselves into an alignment that we might uh, well regret in the future. And the same goes for other powers as well. 
vice versa applies. Um, Alina, you mentioned threat perceptions, and that's interesting. You know, Southeast Asia is huge uh, geographically and also incredibly diverse. And Sebastian mentioned the difference between maritime and mainland uh, Southeast Asia. Perhaps you know, collectively, we could we could sort of address that issue. What what are the primary threat perceptions? Um, Alina, I think you mentioned that Malaysia doesn't want to make an adversary of uh, China. I think that's probably true of nearly every country in Southeast Asia. But are we focused too much on the sort of U.S.-China prism? And are there other threats um, that are at play here we should be aware of? When I was based in KL and I often got asked this question by foreign visitors, my answer would always be the same. And I don't think it's changed at all. The number one threat perception for a country like Malaysia, arguably for some of the countries in Southeast Asia, has always been internal. The national cohesion or lack thereof has been the number one risk to security for a country like Malaysia. Because without a cohesive state of the nation, there is no state or a nation to defend against external threats. And so I would argue that that continues to be probably the most important point in terms of risk perception for a country like Malaysia. I'm sure um, Evan can expand on that in the case of Indonesia as well, you know, with the various regional uprisings and separatist rebellions that the, the Republic has faced since independence. Um, the Philippines probably um, similarly. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think the majority of how security leaders in Southeast Asia and certainly in, in Indonesia, on a day-to-day -day basis, they are very much thinking about internal security. Sure, some of the new, shall we say, operational challenges has been a little bit uh, cross-border, like illegal fishing, uh, drugs, etc. But by and large, the primary lens remains internal security. Of course, there are long-term strategic challenges when it comes to uh, certain parts of the territory that may be open to incursions like the maritime domain. And that uh, brings up uncomfortable questions about, well, do we start to worry more about our neighbors and stuff like that? Certainly it's there. And certainly uh, within ASEAN themselves, there are unresolved border, both on land and, and, and maritime that uh, remains to be uh, uh, resolved. Uh, so if you look at the landscape of the threat perception, I think you would say that uh, U.S.-China uh, a competition or, or China maybe in terms of actual military threat perception probably will not rank high in terms of the day-to-day -day stuff, right? But strategically, of course, everybody understands that the region is changing, uh, that China poses a challenge, etc. cetera. Uh, but it hasn't been very uh, dominant enough to overcome a lot of the internal security considerations on a daily basis, I think. It's also, I think this also speaks to a, a broader set of priorities that Southeast Asian governments have that, you know, are focused on domestic development. Um, you know, you see you know, leaders like Jokowi in Indonesia, um, recent Malaysian leaders, well, really, you know, in virtually every part of the region, you know, generating economic development in order to, you know, create a sense of, you know, economic legitimation is very important for many governments in the region. And so economic relationships with China are very important. You know, the, 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 in some places that takes less, you know, less high-minded forms. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that in, in countries like Cambodia or Myanmar, the decisions of individuals that are uh, prominent in the governments of these places, you know, um, have, a, you know, uh, mean a lot. And I think for, in, these, in these two particular cases, simple regime survival 
and uh, you know is is a very important goal and that also comes with a certain threat perception attached to it which is you know a threat of of external i.e western intervention or sanctions that might destabilize the current ruling arrangements and so that that also you know there are are threat perceptions that are that also reflect the interests of entrenched elites in in, in certain places yeah i think you get at something interesting there and i i've actually recently been thinking about this and sort of analyzing Cambodia and Myanmar's foreign policy decisions in tandem. Um, and I think one common thread is that neither really faces a genuine external threat, but the, the major threat is the internal security dynamic. Actually, for Cambodia, that's not that's not, not exactly true. But the, the politics renders it such that Hun Sen can exercise sort of unilateral control over foreign policy. Um, and therefore, Nam Pen's alignment is basically subject to one man's decision, uh, which arguably yeah. is true in the case of Myanmar as well. You know, maybe we should talk about Myanmar a bit. Um, this unresolved crisis, there was a coup in the beginning of 2021. ASEAN has sort of uh, more or less failed to mount a collective response to the situation. Indonesia just took up the chair of ASEAN, though. Uh, is there any hope for a solution in the next year or at least sort of um, a drawdown in violence and perhaps some uh, diplomatic talks? I don't see it, but I, I, I'll, I, I wonder what my uh, co-panelists think. Well, I mean, I think there is a growing realization in Jakarta that, you know, the first thing is no one uh, foresees a condition under which the crisis will be solved within one year. Uh, I think there's an acceptance that any issue of ASEAN's engagement with Myanmar is not a one-year thing. And it's certainly not ideal if it's every year every chair has different approaches, right? So I think right now the mood is trying to find a long-term uh, roadmap to engage Myanmar beyond the five-point consensus, beyond just the one-year uh, deliverables of you know visits or aid delivery or ending violence. Because at the end of the day, we are uh, gradually accepting that we failed in actually fully integrating Myanmar into ASEAN when Myanmar first joined. So there needs to be a rethink of how we want to do this and commit ASEAN resources and planning long-term beyond just one or two chairmanship. Number two, I think there's also a growing realization in Jakarta that probably it is time to understand that when we say inclusive stakeholders, we don't just mean SAC versus NUG or NUCC, but we also need to start bringing in the ethnic groups. Um, and this is something that uh, not many of us in the region and, and certainly not in Indonesia uh, fully understand the complexity of engaging with different ethnic groups. What are their thoughts on elections, on federalism, etc. So I think there is a slow process in that sense. So for me, uh, Indonesia's success of, um, of chairmanship when it comes to Myanmar isn't the short-term resolution of the crisis and the current violence, but can Indonesia lay a long-term framework and engagement that commits ASEAN to engage Myanmar beyond just the one chairmanship, beyond just the short-term aid delivery, but to fully start and facilitate the inclusive dialogue, etc. Of course, uh, we cannot do much in terms of like, you know, 50 years of nation building, etc. But in terms of making sure that there are implementable benchmarks and roadmaps in which we can see that there's progress on dialogue, etc., that is probably the best that we can hope for. To say that Indonesia can come uh, as one year of chairmanship, and bearing in mind that one year is actually a lot shorter when you consider that 
uh, the runway for the deliverables for two summits is basically only one or two months, right? Uh, the, the first foreign minister's retreat is in late Jan. Then we have to get ready for the summit perhaps in, in, in March or April. Uh, sorry, in, in, in April or May. And then the second summit in, in November. When you look at that runway and when you consider the other priorities that Indonesia has had, I think it's, it's still, it still seems unrealistic to expect Indonesia to solve the crisis. But if Indonesia can develop that long-term engagement roadmap, I think that would be the best that we could do at, uh, at our current time. Of course, all this sits downstream of, of what happens in the country itself. I mean, you know, and, and on that front, I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to get a good sense of exactly like the, the balance of battlefield sort of, uh, you know, successes because you have, you know, the NUG, obviously, you know, like the Ukrainians uh, at the moment, they have an incentive to sort of, you know, um, uh, shall we say, emphasize the positive and downplay sort of setbacks. And, and obviously the same applies for the military junta as well. And it's very hard to get a good sense of, of exactly, you know, how close is the military government to some form of collapse or, or is it in a state that it has enough power and access to resources that it can survive in this sort of semi, uh, you know, stable state, you know, more or less indefinitely. Um, you know, so like it's, it's very hard to, to, to sort of establish an outlook um, for, for the coming year. I mean, my guess would be that the, the, the conflict will continue and perhaps settle into a, you know, a, you know, the sort of rhythm we've seen throughout this year um, of rebel attacks and, and government, you know, vicious um, military uh, reprisals. And then, of course, there's the election um, that the junta is planning to hold this year. And, and I, I suppose that's a that's a huge challenge for Indonesia and ASEAN as a whole. You know, how do you how do they respond to, you know, as a collective to this election? Um, the former Malaysian foreign minister, Saifuddin Abdullah, has he, he wrote a piece in the Jakarta Post yesterday or the day before saying that the election would be a sham and that it would only worsen the situation in Myanmar. But will that same position, will that same view be, you know, prevail in, in somewhere like Hanoi or in Phnom Penh mm-hmm. or in uh, even Bangkok? Um, so, you know, it, it, yeah, it's going, how ASEAN handles um, that election, whether to accept it or not, uh, you know, um, or to what extent to accept it will be an interesting uh, thing right. to watch out. And I've seen uh, Scott Marcial, former ambassador, uh, U.S. ambassador to Myanmar, uh, as well as a sort of heavyweight uh, authority on Southeast Asia, more generally advocating ASEAN to take a position um, mm. early He's on, strong on that, yeah. announcing uh, the Myanmar junta's uh, election or um, what uh, Marcus Brand at IDEA, International Something for Election Assistance um, has called an electoral performance. It's not, you know, he doesn't want to grant it the legitimacy of an election, right? Um, how, how do you stage an election across the country when it's at war with itself? And the junta arguably does not control the majority of territory across the state. Um, but looking more beyond ASEAN, you know, who is protecting uh, Myanmar's junta? You know, do, do China and Russia really play an important role in sort of guaranteeing regime survival there? Or is it mostly just limited to its ability to survive on the battlefield? Uh, the, the country's economy has completely plummeted and somehow the junta has managed to uh, stay in power thus far. Oh, well, I mean, the thing I, I suppose to mention is that they have a lot of practice at, first of all, surviving this sort of um, isolation from the West, um, uh, you know, and there are, you know, there there is a massive shadow economy in Myanmar and there has been for many decades, you know, um, to do with the movement of resources from outlying regions, you know, conflict zones of the country, um, to markets in China and further afield. I mean, China, of course, is right there. So things just move across the border quite 
quite frictionlessly, um, similar to a lesser extent with Thailand. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, China is, uh, you know, can be said to be, you know, because it's not denouncing the military junta, that it's supporting it. And of course, China's one point made by the, uh, the, the opposition movement within Myanmar is that China's claim to non-interference is, is really bogus in this case, but because by backing the junta, it, it is in fact interfering um, and, and, and making a decision about who to support within the country. Um, and I think, you know, you can focus on China and Russia as being, you know, the sort of the big, the big uh, bogeyman of the international order, I suppose. But, you know, India isn't continuing to engage with Myanmar. The Japanese are, you know, eschewing the path of sanctions that, that the Western nations have chosen. Thailand, which shares a long border with the country, has, has remained committed to a, a policy of pragmatic engagement and, and so on. So I think actually that the country's doing the isolating, which are really the Europeans and the Americans, North Americans. And uh, even the Australians have, have sat out, you know, imposing really serious sanctions. Um, you know, the, in, in many ways, they're the exceptions rather than the reverse. Even within ASEAN, right, the empathy meter towards uh, Myanmar and its junta ranges from complete disgust to, um, well, we understand what's going on. And so it's very, in a way, it's easy to point fingers at outside players like China, like Russia. But I think even within ASEAN, Certain countries deserve a certain level of scrutiny that often does not happen. So it's it's complicated, obviously, but I think given the great power competition backdrop, it's always easiest to point fingers at certain large players rather than um, to look at some of these other smaller players, but really important ones with uh, regard to what's going on in Myanmar. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Singapore is another one that should be mentioned as, you know, sort of the financial, the offshore financial haven for a lot of junta money. And yeah, it uh, plays a very important role. No, I just want to say that I, I, I fully agree with, with Alina in a sense that Myanmar is 100% the responsibility of Southeast Asian states and ASEAN. We can blame it all we want towards external powers, uh, you know, but it, this is not the same category as the South China Sea, for example. This is 100% an ASEAN problem and an ASEAN responsibility. So it is, I think, incumbent upon uh, the individual Southeast Asian states to actually do something about it. But you know, the trend actually has been towards a lot more uh, a bifurcation, if not uh, polarization when it comes to Myanmar, rather than sort of the rather collective agreement on, on, on how to move forward from a year ago, right? So it's certainly in, in, in the last meeting, um, you know, that Don, um, the FM of Thailand, tried to organize over Boxing Day. That actually made it even worse. Um, everybody hated that, that meeting. Uh, because it wasn't an official ASEAN meeting. They wanted us to meet with WUNA, which is not a thing that we wanted to do. So Wuna we're not Mali seeing a... Foreign Minister yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're not seeing a, a convergence of, of ASEAN in this matter. We're actually seeing a divergence. Um, and I should note that, you know, I think in, in Jakarta, the realization itself is that if we wanted to do something as ASEAN chair, we cannot do it without Thailand. There cannot be a Myanmar option without Thailand, right? So e even then, our relationship is not that great with Thailand. So the, the, the fracturing of an already fragile consensus to begin with uh, uh, um, uh, from ASEAN, I think, is, is, is getting worse. And I think uh, this is where Indonesia's constraints and, 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 and challenges would be uh, this year.
Mm. So we're getting back to that sort of um, uh, classic uh, division between maritime and mainland Southeast Asia. Um, you mentioned the South China Sea and, you know, early on in the COVID uh, pandemic, it seems like China sort of took advantage of the uh, pandemic to, to make some moves um, and uh, coalesce its, its claims. But when I was in Singapore more recently, um, policymakers there were generally telling me that, you know, the focus across the region is no longer really on the South China Sea. Things have been fairly quiet there. And now uh, the region is more preoccupied with tensions in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, generally speaking, um, Speaker of the House, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, trip to Taiwan in uh, September, I believe, I've forgotten exactly when that took place, was seen as a sort of needless provocation uh, poking uh, China and uh, predictably, predictably leading to the uh, really aggressive reaction that Beijing had and sending incursions over Taiwan's median air, air defense identification zone. Um, is that generally the state of play in Southeast Asia? Is the South China Sea no longer the sort of flashpoint that it was uh, only a few years ago? I think the, the flash continues to be there. Um, it's just that it hasn't been getting a lot of publicity. There are still incursions. There's still um, IIU fishing going on. Those things still remain. They just haven't had the publicity that they've had in the past. And that's for the Taiwan Strait. You know, I, I don't see a lot of internal discussion on this in Malaysia. I'm here right now. I don't hear a lot of it in Southeast Asia in general. I do hear some of it being discussed in among Filipino um, commentators, for example. So I wonder how much of it is an imposed conversation on the region rather than, you know, actual urgent worry about Taiwan Strait erupting into a hot conflict. Yeah, I think a lot of it does have to do with um, international attention. I mean, the Ukraine war has dominated a lot of Western discussion of the the fate of the, the globe. You know, that, that has really, you know, Russia's return to this sort of arch bogeyman um, uh, position, um, you know, for, for, for good reason, let me add, um, you know, as I, I mean, that's led to the Myanmar crisis sort of fading from the headlines. I mean, I think it was probably inevitable that that it would anyway because of the international the limited attention span of the international press um but yeah i mean i think the cambodians during their chairmanship of asean last year were in some sense lucky that you know the, the ukraine conflict and the myanmar crisis were so prominent in the agenda that it's sort of you know the south china sea was was, was you know there was pro forma sentences about um restraint and and, and so forth um, in the various statements that were released during the chairmanship, but it didn't really dominate to the same extent that it did during the, the chairmanship that Cambodia had in 2012, um, which of course coincided with the Scarborough Reef standoff between China and the Philippines and was highly controversial as a result. <clears throat> yeah, I think to pick up on, on Alina's point, uh, I think it's certainly, uh, there are quiet, uh, private, and perhaps in some cases fringe discussions certainly on contingencies like Taiwan, it's not like the most talked about uh, issue, certainly uh, in, in places like Indonesia, when we have other stuff uh, going on. And bearing in mind uh, for Indonesia, uh, this year is a campaign year as we move towards the election in, in 2024, Valentine's Day, easy to remember. Um, but what's interesting about Taiwan, and I think this may or may not come up uh, uh, during Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN, is this concern about reviving uh, a version of zone of peace or freedom and neutrality, sub fund. Because the idea is 
if there were to be contingencies happening around Taiwan Strait, what about Southeast Asian states who do not want to be part of it, but also would not like it to see their waterways and airspace be used by belligerents, right? Um, and whether or not this leads into an actual anti-access strategy or so far, that's a separate debate. But the concern over uh, Taiwan is not just about Southeast Asian citizens in Taiwan, which are a lot, hundreds and thousands of Southeast Asians uh, in Taiwan, and that's the first priority. But the second priority is to what extent will Southeast Asian states be asked to support, facilitate, or even just you know let their airspace and waterways be used by belligerents? And I think this is something that in Jakarta has been talked about, and there are you know clearly uh, some within the foreign policy establishment would like it that we can revive ASEAN instruments for that purpose in terms of sustaining its neutrality, etc. Uh, but I think this is still not yet reaching the proportion of what South China Sea was for Southeast Asian states over the last two decades in terms of shaping fundamentally how we not just look at China, but how we look at the maritime domain, our strategic assessment and so forth. Uh, but it's certainly uh, uh, not as fringe as we think it is. But with new issues coming up, I think it will come back to the fringe. Yeah, all points uh, very well taken. Thank, thank you all. Um, you know, to get back to this framing of great power competition um, in, in the region and the alignments that we've discussed, um, you know, Sebastian drew a lot on the history of the region with the Cold War. And there's this common trope in Washington, uh, at least there was uh, just a couple of years ago, about the, the this era of a new Cold War. It's, you know, time to sort of adopt that mindset and uh, competitive footing with China, uh, but also also Russia. You know, clearly the U.S. is greatly preoccupied with uh, Russia's threat in the European mainland, um, and Southeast Asia has a lot of concerns about great power competition. Um, how how much do you think it's uh, is it fair to draw parallels with the Cold War, or is today's uh, region far more multipolar? And uh, the the struggle for the struggle in Southeast Asia between great powers um, taking place on a different level, uh, different domain that will not lead to uh, interstate war like the or intrastate war like the Cold War did. I've always been a skeptic of the Cold War analogy. I think it speaks to our, you know, the the, the constant uh, misuse of historical analogy and a lot of discussion about international affairs. I mean. If you define the Cold War as a great power competition that doesn't involve direct war between the, you know, the, the, the great powers involved, then I, I guess, you know, you could say it's a Cold War, but there's a lot of other specifics about the original Cold War that have not been reproduced in this case. I think Bilahari in Singapore has been, Bilahari Kosakan, um, former um, Singaporean diplomat, has been very strong on this, that, you know, that it's a much more complex strategic environment. There are, you know, uh, a lot of other you know, um, serious players in the region, economic players and security players um, that that complicate um, this this sort of bipolar uh, or bi biochrome image of a duochrome image of of um, great power competition in the region, and as a result, will give Southeast Asian countries potentially more room for maneuver because there's you know more various outside players, um, and. Um, yeah, and, and even even close partners and allies of the United States have their own interests that diverge in some respects from those of Washington. Um, you know, even if they overlap on, on on you know a lot of the fundamentals. No, I I agree with with, with Sebastian's point that this is a uh, much more complex than the Cold War, etc. And and that's certainly 
the reality that we face. Uh, but I do think it is hard for policymakers who are probably, whether we like it or not, occasionally less sophisticated in their understanding of regional politics. Um, but in that sense, I think it is an easier analogy to come back to in the sense that, uh, you know, our choices, uh, it's not just two, obviously, but we're also not sure if we, if we want a third choice, let's say from the Europeans or something else. Uh, but it's certainly a more, it's, it's more about the push and pull factor, right? Rather than necessarily whether it's being pushed uh, by one or two polars in that sense, because it is reminiscing of the Cold War in the sense that our agenda is not our own. What we wanted to do are things that are different than what the external powers wants us to do or think about. In that sense, I think there are some things that um, a Southeast Asian policymakers feel eerily familiar to the Cold War era. It, it may not be the same type of strategic equation and, and countries, but the notion that we are not in control of our own agenda is certainly uh, quite familiar for Southeast Asian policymakers. To continue Sebastian's analogy about colors, I think the palette of the strategic environment is a lot more multi-hued, but it um, also, as, as Evan mentioned, I think this binary choice that powers say they're not forcing Southeast Asian countries into is a little different in reality with, you know, things like um, friendshoring or reshoring. Um, and that's going to continue to make its mark in the next five, ten, even longer years with uh, things like technological standards and the decoupling of those as well as decoupling of economic relations. So the, the, the options are getting narrower and, and this is, uh, it harkens back to Cold War times in a way, even if it's very different from how it was back in the day. Good. So um, ending on a complex note, I suppose, uh, the outlook is neither uh, completely dark nor entirely um, uh, positive. Um, I, I think, you know, just to sort of wrap up here, perhaps we'll do a lightning round um, in, again, no particular order, and just look at any uh, bright points you see on, on the horizon for 2023, or conversely, any uh, major issues which have you concerned. Um, and if you need a minute to think, you know, uh, you, don't, you don't have to step up to the plate right away. Uh, I, I realize I sprung this question on all of you. Um, but anything that comes to mind here, uh, just for listeners to be aware of um, in 2023. Oh, it's difficult. So many moving pieces, you know. Um, and, you know, a year is such an arbitrary <laughs> delineation of time. Um, uh, let me be biased here and say that uh, for me, things to look out for are not external events, but domestic politics, because I feel like the elections uh, in Southeast Asia this year and next year, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, and then Indonesia in February uh, of 2024, I think will be the catalyst uh, rather than external events, such as, which has always been bad. I don't remember a year in which there's no bad things happening in Southeast Asia. Uh, but I think the leadership uh, uh, is very much determined by the election results and the readiness to respond will be very much shaped by who wins. So for me, I would look out for the elections in Southeast Asia. I'm optimistic about Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN, actually, and the ability to carve the region's agenda in the face of 
strategic competition. And we saw a piece of this uh, last year with three really world summits converging on Southeast Asia. Um, Indonesia, of course, was one of those hosts, G20, uh, with Thailand and Cambodia being the other hosts of uh, APEC and um, ASEAN and ASEAN-related meetings. So I think we've seen, uh, we've been given a peek into what Indonesia is capable of for the region. No, no pressure for Indonesia, Evan. But I, I'm optimistic that Indonesia will be able to steer the region through and um, push through Southeast Asia's own agenda in the face of um, pressures by external powers. I suppose convening uh, world leaders in a setting like Bali has a natural advantage, um, except for whatever happened to Lavrov uh, when he got off his plane. Uh, <laughs> a bit of mystery remains there. <laughs> but uh, Bali perhaps conducive to positive di diplomatic uh, relations. I would say, you know, to come back to the question of, you know, optimism or pessimism, you know, I, I've always, when it comes to Southeast Asia and great power competition and the challenges facing the region, I've always tended to have a pessimist's optimism, I suppose you might say, you know, um, uh, about the, the region's ability to to sort of dodge and weave and to and, and to forge its own its own middle path. Um, I, as, as we discussed today, I think it's getting a lot more complicated. Um, as time goes by, and it seems like the U.S. and China are, you know, um, seemingly on a on a path toward greater competition and more more heated competition, if not confrontation. Um, and you know, things will get more difficult. Um, but you know, I do think Southeast Asians are, you know, uh, you know, they have a lot of practice at sort of managing these sorts of situations. Um, and you know, I think that there is a certain diplomatic instinct to, to to balance and to try and find you know um, space in the interstices, I suppose, between the great powers. And obviously, if it comes to an open U.S.-China conflict, I think a lot of that space disappears. But you know, short of that, I think that you know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that there you know will be um, you know that that Southeast Asian nations will manage um, to preserve that zone of autonomy. Now, the question, I suppose, you know, the reason I say I'm a uh, you know, a, a sort of pessimist optimist is that, you know, when it comes to questions of, you know, um, internal democracy in Southeast Asian countries, you know, I, I see trends kind of moving in the wrong direction in a lot of places. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've long been pessimistic about, you know, how, how even in countries where democratic systems are functioning fairly well, how deeply those norms have penetrated, given that a lot of these nations are very young. And democratic norms and institutions need, you know, uh, in the West, they developed over generations. And so, um, you know, because of a lot of discussion of Southeast Asia is, is framed in the West in sort of, you know, the talk of how democracy is faring in the region. You know, I thought it was worth to mention that, you know, um, yeah, things, I, I don't see a huge amount of bright spots, except perhaps Anwar in Malaysia. I think that was, you know, probably one of the, 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 the most positive stories of, of last year. Right. Well, you, you mentioned concerns for democracy in uh, Southeast Asia. I'm, I'm not so certain uh, we shouldn't have concerns uh, about democracy elsewhere, uh, such as in the United States. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in Australia where things are uh, far more tranquil and the civil discourse is a lot more civil. Um, so, uh, you know, some other uh, dark spots on the horizon, uh, far closer mm -hmm. to the, those Western democracies that are often uh, looking critically at Southeast Asia.
Well, gang, it's been uh, over an hour. I think uh, perhaps we'll wrap up here. I want to thank each of our speakers uh, again very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, it's been an outstanding discussion. I really appreciate the nuance and depth of your expertise and contributions to uh, the conversation today. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank Thanks, you so Hunter. much. Thanks for having it's us. Good seeing everyone. Thank you too. Take care. Thanks, yeah, guys. all the best. Bye.